Dr. Bill Kanaski from Courtroom Sciences. Absolutely thrilled to have a very old friend in the house, D. Smith, Executive Director, NFL Players Association. D, how are you doing? I'm awesome. Good to see you, buddy. And uh, yes, it's good to connect with old friends. I, I tell you what, we were, we were just talking before we went on uh, live here, uh, and we we're talking about the lack of sports in our society. And uh, I think it's making a lot of people crazy. How have you been coping without sports? Um, <laughs> I don't, I don't, I don't think I've been without sports. Um, I mean, you know, we, we got our collective bargaining agreement done, uh, uh, in let's say the, the first week or so of March and, and that was voted on on a Saturday and, and rolled into a global pandemic on Monday. So, yeah. you know, business, um, hasn't stopped. And, you know, if anything, it's, it's, um, you know, we're probably all running at about 110, 115% right now. Wow. Um, question. How are, how are the players dealing with COVID-19, uh, not being able to work out in, in groups is what it's sounding like and a lot of individual workouts. How, how are they coping with that? You know, I, you know, our players are resilient. I, I think, you know, one of the reasons why they are so successful at this level um is they just simply adapt um and, and they are you know as mentally strong you know not even close i mean they're just mentally stronger as well as as somewhat physically different than everybody else but yeah. what gives them the edge is really uh the mental discipline that they have mm -hmm. and you know we we pivoted to uh virtual otas yeah and and that that almost that that went on without a you know really without a hitch you know, football has evolved over a number of decades, and this is yet another instance where it will just evolve. And um, our guys will figure it out. Coaches will, you know, bright, but they'll figure it out. And, yep. um, and, and the goal will be how do we bend, you know, the NFL to the, the virus as opposed to trying to bend the virus to the NFL. That's, that's a good point. Now, Dean, you and I go way back to your days as a trial attorney, and uh, I tell you what, we had a lot of fun. In my first two years of jury consulting, you and I worked on several trials and focus groups together, and uh, I got to tell you, I, I really, really learned uh, a lot from you. So I have, I have some questions about that, but I think we have to – I want to go to a key question here because the world is very sure. crazy right now. you got a combination of – pandemic and a lot of social unrest can football save this country both mentally and socially no <laughs> no um no um you know i i, I don't want to uh be too uh you know pollyanna-ish about sports sport is a important place in america um, you know, sports philosophically, you know, if you sort of the, the, the earliest book on the philosophy of sport was written by um, uh, a man named Joseph, Joseph Heizenga. <laughs> uh, and and the thesis of his that early book was that what really uh, defines sport in its essence isn't so much sport as its play. And and so when 
you know, certainly I work in the National Football League and work in, in the business of trade unionism. But when we think about sports, the real beauty of sport is how you and I and our kids and our family, um, how it relates to how we interact with, with each other, both engaging in and watching play. And at the end of the day, you know, play, uh, whether you are watching dogs, you know, wrestle in, in the backyard or, or whether you're watching, you know, you know, what I what I unfortunately still do and then get hurt, you know, messing around with my son. And, you know, yeah. it's fun in games until picks me up and puts me somewhere. Um, you know, the real beauty of sport is how it creates social connections. So that's a long way of saying football, you know, NFL is not going to save anything. What will save us is all of us learning how to live um and get along and and have a view towards what it's like to walk in another person's shoes agreed and that's really social engagement so you know you know what we do in the nfl is such a small tiny part of play um what we need is a larger and more inclusive you know both morally ethically and spiritually um of how we're gonna interact with each other yeah, I, I, I agree. You know, the one thing I miss, which which it's, you know, when you start looking back on things, uh, when you're locked up for three months in your house and you, you can't socially engage, um, I, go, going to football games or college basketball games, it's amazing. It's like if everybody's wearing that same color around you, you're wearing the same jersey and the touchdown gets scored. I don't care what your sex is, your your race is, everybody's hugging and high-fiving. And it's yeah. it's a I hope we can get back to that and have some fun soon. Yeah, and that, you know, look, that is very important. I guess the one piece I worry about a little bit, and, and, um, and you know, I mean, part of, of what I believed in being a, a good trial lawyer was, um, um, you know, having a, a, a firm depth and sort of history and literature. and um, But, you know, the, the one part that I do worry about, and I do think that, that, frankly, the country is better off right now not having a lot of sport is, you know, sport as entertainment, sport as an escape, you know, sport as I can focus on this and not focus on that. That's where, you know, you know, like Neil Postman would say, that's that's the risk where uh, of entertaining ourselves to death. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and so, you know, one of the reasons I do think that the country has started to look inward is there really isn't um, an escape There's no right now. There's nowhere else to look. <laughs> and you have to embrace, you know, what's going on. And so I think, you know, I think it's weird. I mean, every now and then it just seems in our social order that, you know, something comes along and comes a little bit closer to kind of riding the ship, you know? And so, you know, if we can bring back sports, you know, as a, as a function of that social engagement, but prevent it from being an escape so we could ignore everything else, that's closer to the right balance. Absolutely, uh, great point. Now, sp speaking of uh, being a trial attorney, uh, this is my 16th year of, of, of jury and trial yeah. consulting, and uh, I was kind of a baby when I was, I was uh, on those cases with you. But I gotta tell you, something I wanna address here, one of the, the best skills I saw you pull off where I was just literally jaw dropping and you may be the best I've ever seen. 
your ability to get in front of a jury and, and your storytelling skills were absolutely amazing. And 15, 16 years later, I'm working with a different generation of attorneys. And I got to tell you, they admittedly struggle with it. Talk yeah. about the, the importance of the ability to tell a story to a jury, kind of where you got those skills from. And, and, and if you're not able to do that, how it really, it really hurts your case in front of a jury. Yeah, well, I mean, let me start this way. I mean, you you may have been young, but you let's just say you were a brilliant baby. So, um, um, I, you know, I've I haven't worked with anyone you know in in the field better than you and um, and the team there. Um, the checks in the mail, the the checks in the mail. <laughs> well, you know, I'll say this and then answer your question. I I, I think it is extremely important when um, to be a part of a team and when people sort of you know, see the world the same way, see the problem the same way, everybody can work on in the same way towards the solution. And 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 that makes that makes those partnerships really easy. And I look, I, I had a fantastic time. Um, you know, it wasn't not stressful, but it was fantastic. <laughs> um, you know, the storytelling part, I mean, that's the way I was um, not only trained as a lawyer um, in, in law school, but you know, I come from a family that just is a group of storytellers. Yeah. And, um, you know, I come from a long line of Baptist preachers and it's all about telling stories. <laughs> um, and, um, you know, it's one thing to sort of, uh, you know, watch a, a struggling pastor stand up and, and read a sermon. Yeah. It's another thing to watch someone um, tell a story to a congregation without any notes and 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 choosing to choosing engagement over whatever you've decided to write down, you know, on a sheet of paper. And you know, you know, from your background that that ability to connect to 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 establish a um, trust network mm-hmm. between the 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 deliverer and the person who's receiving the information is far more important psychologically than the tidbit of information that you're actually giving. Um, And, and, you know, and then the other thing too, is I, you know, I, I really started to um, research and, and learn storytelling when I became a, a a prosecutor, Um, you know, that I'll forget the name of the book, but you know, it's somewhere, somewhere in here (laughs) about the art of storytelling and the opening of the book um is a is a fable about um truth walking into a campfire with people around it and no one accepted truth because it was raw it was brutal and it was ugly so truth leaves the campfire and comes back clothed in story and when truth walks back into the campfire clothed in story everybody around the campfire welcomes truth yeah because it's clothed in something that they can relate to and and i think that's in essence if i had to boil down the job of a trial lawyer um how do you clothe you know what happens to be your truth um small t truth sometimes (laughs) um um, in story and if you can't tell a story I, i mean you know you and i both watched and and you know <laughs> we we had co co-counsel bad 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 
bad. Just bad. bad. Just I remember bad. us in the room going like, "Oh no, this is what is he? What is he doing?" <laughs> I tell you, oh, I, that was a good time. That was a good time. So we we got consulted on a case uh, earlier this year before COVID, and I had a client, um, a, a newer client. Uh, call me and say, you know, oh my God, the case didn't, you remember these days, oh my God, the case didn't settle, we're actually going to trial, there's a pure panic, we need you to come, <laughs> down. Need you to come down and help pick the jury. I'm okay, I'll you know, buy my flight, I get down there, I think I picked a pretty good jury. And D.I., I kid you not, I, so I said, I'm going to stay in the afternoon for opening statements. The defense counsel got up, I'm not, this, this is a couple months ago, with an iPad, and read, never made icon, just read the entire opening from an iPad. That I mean, I was like, I, I can't believe I'm seeing this, and obviously there's nothing I can do. I, I can't take a 20 second and go, hey, T.O., baby, uh, you need to stop doing that. Can you talk about the importance of your movement in the courtroom and your eye contact with people and how if you, if you read it, even off note cards would be just destructive to your case? Yeah, I well, you know, my, my mother is the toughest one in our family, and she would say at that point, you know, you, you someone needed to walk up and deliver a good country slap. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, I I was always a fan of um, of no notes. Um, I, I I was trained, you know, as a again a lawyer, you know, young lawyer, um, young budding lawyer in law school, um, and and really, you know. When, when a trial lawyer stands up in a courtroom, um, you know, he or she has to take on that they are the uh, leading actor, the stage director, um, the showrunner, yeah. um, and the most important person in the courtroom. And, and I know that, you know, I know that during my career that pissed off a lot of judges. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but, you know, I always looked at it this way. I mean, the judges, in, in some respects... You know, and again, I'm just taking things that people taught me. Yeah. Judges chained to the bench. The witness is chained to the 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 witness chair. The jury is stuck in a box. The only person in that room, ability um, and improvisation, is a trial lawyer. And and if you don't take advantage of that, um, the worst thing you're doing is ceding the advantage to somebody else. And you know, if there's as good of a jury as you picked, if somebody on the other side is better at that, that stagecraft, you're right. They will take the great jury that you picked. Yep. <laughs> and they will sludge hammer that jury over a bad trial lawyer. And that's exactly what happened in the case I was just referring to. <laughs> well, you know, and I mean, it, it's kind of that, that world, I mean, you know, you, you get into certain federal courtrooms and, and, you know, some judges engage in that kind of shotgun jury selection where yeah. you, you really have a limited ability. Yeah, federal court, especially, yeah. Yeah, to even exercise strikes. Yeah. Um, you know, and I, I had the, the luxury of, of really learning how to try cases in, in D.C. Superior Court. Wow. Um, and, and it's a free-for-all. And so... <laughs> you learn how to take advantage of that lack of structure. Um, and then if you're stuck in a world where you have a tremendous amount of structure, yeah, you learn how to take advantage of just the little micro pieces of, of non-structured um, engagement that you have. Yeah. 
And man, just take advantage of it because I look, I have been waxed by <laughs> really good trial lawyers who had really bad facts, yeah. you know, especially when I was a criminal lawyer. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll never forget, you know, the, the, there were probably, you know, 10 or so, you know, criminal justice act lawyers or, or public defenders Yep. who, you know, really didn't have a lot to work with when, when I was prosecuting a case. Yeah. And there were a handful of them that would keep me awake at night. I'm sure. Um, over their ability to try a multi-defendant, you know, conspiracy case with literally a half a page of a of a legal pad. Yeah, yeah, and that's amazing. And oh my, well, if once you see it happen, you know, you realize I'm just along for the ride. <laughs> I know how this is going to end. It's you know, and so. That is a awful <laughs> feeling. So you really learn um, sometimes that you know you know this. Yeah. You know it's like the it's like the Mike Tyson line. You know everybody has a plan until you get hit in the face, right? Okay. Yeah. And so learning how to pivot, um, learning how to uh, take advantage of what you're feeling from a jury. Yeah. Um, you know, you taught me a lot about you know how to pick out certain people yeah. in a in a jury box um how to read body language from a witness but you know so much of that stuff is um and i think you know sometimes you know really how do i say this nicely <laughs> people who have been in law firms for a very long time but but may not know how to try cases yeah they they they're very good at all the facts, they're very good at, you know, all the wonderful multicolored outlines um, and tabs. I mean, you saw me, it yeah. was it was basically a notepad, maybe a couple of cards. Yeah, if That's that, it. if that. If that, and, and so you're trying to manage, um, I, you know, I know you and I, you, you've studied Herb Stern and uh, that's the way I was taught, you know, trying cases to win when you're in a courtroom and you're really trying to leverage the judge, the witness, your opposing counsel, your witness, yourself, all towards what's the best package for the jury. And yeah, if you can't do that, um, you might be a litigator, but you're not a trial lawyer. Exactly. And uh, now I, I don't I, would, I don't want to bring up any PTSD here. <laughs> any nightmares. But because my true love, my true love um, is actually not the jury psychology part. It's the witness preparation part. Because I think that's the key driver of jury decision making. Can yep. you talk about regardless, you could give the best opening statement ever given on this planet. Talk about how an unprepared witness can absolutely torpedo your case. Well, yeah, and it, and it has. Um, because, again, it goes to managing the stagecraft, right? And. You know, imagine you're you're you've gone to see Hamilton. It's the best, you know, the, the best stage you've ever seen. You've got the best director. You've got the best actors. The, the, the audience is there. The music is fantastic. And the guy walks in for the first, you know, opening line and he forgets his words. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> OK, game over. <laughs> the play is ruined yeah so you know to me that's the 
danger. I mean, I was trained. <laughs> I mean, this is horrible, but I was trained that witnesses are bad. Yeah, I mean, nothing but that, nothing but trouble. So, you know, what I would say is the what I always tried to do with with our witnesses, both as a prosecutor, you know, criminal defense lawyer, and, and when we were trying cases together, was really take the minimalist view. That, you know, prepare, I'm sorry, deliver a well-prepared witness and and delivering that in, in, in a minimal way where it, it touches the things or the elements that you have to do, um, but you don't take on any harm. I would choose a witness who delivers 15 minutes of crisp, nearly flawless testimony rather than a witness who delivers a solid hour and because a solid hour um and 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 the reason why i think it has such a negative impact is i think two things happen and i think sometimes lawyers only think of the one bad thing okay the first bad thing that happens is your witness doesn't do well on the stand and doesn't you know doesn't perform well yeah everybody understands that i mean a five-year-old gets that <laughs> um, I, I think the difference between you know what i learned from really good trial lawyers was two things actually happen one your witness doesn't get something right second and perhaps even more important the jury now takes that flaw or or misstep or error and they actually layer it on to the person who presented the witness yep exactly and and so it breaks that trust um, dynamic, and they no longer trust you as a truth teller. And now that's that's something that carries on not only after that witness, it carries on to the next witness, it carries on to everything you do, and now you carry that baggage the poison. into closing. Yep, yep. It's the gift that keeps on giving. <laughs> so, you know, for me, I, I have always believed that, um, you know, and again, it feeds into my ego, um, that, that trial lawyers are the people who deliver wins. Yeah. Um, and and if, a, you know, like you said, you pick a great, and you always pick a great jury. Um, if they don't believe me at the end, it's not going to matter. Yeah, you're right. No, you're, you're, you're absolutely right. Okay, let's get back to sports. Okay. <laughs> no, no. Absolutely. Okay. NFL, MLB, NBA. Which players association director has the biggest headaches? Wow. Um, Little curveball there. <laughs> yeah, that's a curveball. Um, I think we all have different challenges. Yeah. Um, Tony Clark. Um, is brilliant. Um, he's probably the the players association chief that I'm the closest to. He's like a brother. Tony uh, was a tremendous um, athlete. You know, multi sport guy. Played in a long you know, a long time in the uh, MLB. You know, he has a challenge that I don't have. You know, forty somewhere between forty and sixty percent of any given team that he visits uh, is from another country. Yeah, that's, that's a challenge. That's a, yeah, that's it's huge. He's got to he's got to conduct his team meetings half in Spanish. So, yeah, my challenge, you know, tends to be that we we have the shortest playing careers. Yeah. Um, Michelle Roberts, you know, in the NBA, she probably has the youngest 
along with Tony, probably as the youngest players because they come right, you know, a year out of college. Yeah. So, you know, I, I like my gig. <laughs> um, <laughs> most of our guys are, are four-year guys. Um, they're older. Um, I do think that that brings a different level of maturity. Yes. Um, into it, um, you know, but, but, you know, I also have 2,000 special cats. Yeah, I'm, sh- I'm, I'm actually sure. And you brought up something interesting about the, the maturity of, 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 of the players. And we've, we've seen the AFL and now the XFL again um, fail for, for a number of different reasons. Is you know, The NFL really is the only sport with, without a, a farm system, I, I guess. Or I guess the, the, the college is the, is the, I guess, natural oh, farm farm system is 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 it gonna should it stay that way or should there be a different farm system and why and why why is that you don't you don't want Uh, vince mcmahon uh no no (laughs) i I mean look i I wouldn't mind um i wouldn't mind competitors to the nfl um but i have been a um hardliner when it comes to quote-unquote farm systems because it creates a group of of professional athletes who are second class citizens, yeah. um, and so you look at minor league baseball where you've got what you know probably quadruple the number of uh, of of them in the minor leagues that are playing in the majors. Um, they play without a collective bargaining agreement. They play without minimum salaries. They play without benefits. Yep. Um, and and that's an you know that's a that's a that's a system that I think you know breeds inequity. Yeah, um, and I also think it's not good for the individual players because um, take basketballs. Uh, I forget what they call it, G League or whatever they call it. Um, you know, the, the everybody can name the first three guys on a four guys on a NBA roster. Yeah, you know, after you get to guy five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Yep. Who knows? It's whomever. And so, and, and the tough thing for those group of guys is every year, a large group of those guys go back into this G League pool yeah. and they have to play all year against, you know, another 2,000 people with the hope of once again being guys 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12. And I, I think that that creates an inequity. And so, you know, I, as long as I'm here, we're never going to have a minor league football um, you know, with the NFL, because I think it would simply mean that a larger group of our guys would have the lack of job security. That, that, that's a very good point. Now, with COVID kind of taking over the headlines, I know uh, the issue of CTE has been a very important issue to you. Yep. And um, I've read titled, are we going to have football in 15, 20 years? And a lot of those articles, um, Reference the fact that insurance coverage is becoming more and more difficult. Uh, so I guess the first question is, do you think the league is handling the CTE issue um, in the right way? And then secondarily, um, how does the insurance industry re- really handle this? And is that going to be a barrier going forward? Yeah, I, I think the, you know, again, I think the biggest risk um to, you know, global football, you know, from youth all the way up. I, I, the biggest risk is clearly little right. leagues, high schools, local jurisdictions can get insurance coverage. Yeah. I mean, that that is going to be, that's the threat, really. Um, 
And, 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 you know, we can go back and forth on whether it's a real threat or just a simply, a you know, an insurance company decides who they want to insure. Right. And, and, you know, once you pull the risk, you have a relatively small um, risk of, of massive payouts, but it's a, it's a business that is, um, that is in the business of not paying, um, not paying out claims. And my bills, by the way, my invoice. <laughs> <laughs> so, Oops. you know, that's the real threat to, to football up to, you know, college and, and the pros. Yeah. That's not really a huge threat, you know, with with major college programs um, uh, and the pros. You know, do I think the league is is handling it the right way? I, I I would say this. I think they've handled it better, you know, since 2009 when the union, you know, really became aggressive about preventing, um, you know, unnecessary head trauma. So, you know, look, the, the problem with with you know, anything like CTE, and it's one of the things that keeps me awake at night dealing with COVID. Um, while we know a lot more um, about head injuries and, and long-term consequences of head injuries, we still know far less um, than there is to know. Yeah. And, and so, you know, even now when we are, you know, grinding through you know, if and when and to what extent football returns, you know, one of these interesting questions out there is we're dealing with a novel and emerging virus. Yeah. And we don't know um, whether there could be long term, you know, uh, 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 lung cancer consequences, long term heart consequences. And so, you know, it's sort of you know, I think sometimes it's a it's a blessing and a curse to come into this job. You yeah. know, being a a long term liability lawyer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, sometimes I I dream you know that I I had I knew less um, about stuff. Yeah. Um. But I don't. You know. And so, you know, I know everybody wants football to come back, but um, right now there's just a whole lot of things that we're trying to work through and and we're trying to force the league to um bear the responsibility that uh, an employer would normally have yeah and, and try to prepare the best we can for the unknown excellent points d um finish we're just kind of wrapping up here um the challenges that you faced as a young black attorney um Times are, are actually different, very, very different now from, from when, when you started. And uh, you have a, um, um, I, I have had a pleasure of working with some young, thriving uh, uh, black attorneys. What advice would you give them as far as career advice in 2020? And I, I, I will say this, because there's an interaction yeah. effect, and this has nothing to do with skin color. 40 and 50 something partners despise millennial uh, associates, <laughs> they want to leave at five oh one. They want to come in at nine thirty. Yeah, they they're like the redheaded stepchildren of every law firm right now, and I hear complaints on a weekly basis. Yeah, um, what advice would you give young black attorneys to 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 get to that partnership level to really thrive in in the field of law? Yeah, I think two things. I, I you know one. Um, 
I love being a, a, a partner at both Latham and Watkins and, and Patent Bugs. You know, I, I really loved it. I mean, my advice would be, and I'm going to frame this the right way, if you want to be a partner um, at a major law firm, and I would start there because you, you and I both know, um, I think every now and then people sort of have this, you know, pie in the sky vision of what it likes to be a partner at a major law firm and, you know, Let's just say that the days of playing, you know, four rounds of golf a week and, you know, <laughs> probably not. <laughs> um, so I would say if you want to be a partner at a major law firm, um, my advice to, you know, especially, you know, lawyers of color is, um, you know, find that area of law that you love and perfect your craft um, because, you know, like a like a skilled surgeon, like a skilled diamond cutter, um, you're going to face a whole lot of challenges. Um, but if you have not perfected your craft, it doesn't matter if you've managed everything else. Um, the second thing I would say is um, um, be aggressive. Um, you know, I mean, we we had a wonderful time working together. Y you and I understood and saw a lot of things going on in the in the background um uh about how lawyers are selected for trial teams yeah. and and the 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 politics of what goes on you know in these trials and, and 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 still go on i'm sure um now um control the things that you can control try to play the dozens on the things that you can't control yeah but i, I you know i learned a lot um you know, even after, you know, coming out of the U.S. Attorney's Office, I, I learned a lot after having tried, you know, nearly 200 jury trials. Um, yeah, that's amazing. You don't handling, see that today, but the D, you don't see that today, by the way. You get yeah, a jury. <laughs> it's like. Yeah, and that that is, you know, we can talk about that for another, you know, two hours. Um, you know, I, I think that it, trial lawyers, you know, just trials are things that we just don't see much anymore. But. Um, you know, the, the advice to younger lawyers is, is that you, um, you are always going to have to face things, you know, outside of the courtroom, um, perfect your skill. Um, and when it comes to handling those things that, that happen outside of the courtroom, yes, you're going to have to, um, manage them with, you know, with a level of grace and a level of skill and, and sometimes a level of, of politics. Yeah. But that said, um, I, I just never felt that there was any other course than to just be aggressive and and to have confidence in in my own skill and um, and you know that doesn't mean you're going to win every internal fight, but you know I, I'd much rather go out having given it that shot and 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 losing rather than second guessing myself later on and saying hey maybe I should have been a little more aggressive. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I, the only thing I miss, um, you know, in this current job is I, I would do just about anything to dry case. Yeah. Oh, I bet um, it's itching, man. You got the itch. I can tell. I can see. Look, I, I miss it. It's <clears throat> well, you know, it's just also the, the, the psychological part of, you know, something starts and something ends. Yeah. Um, and you either win or you lose. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, there's, you know, well, 
it, 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 it it's terrible if you lose. But um, but um, <laughs> I do miss the um, I do, I do miss sort of the weight of um, of 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 a of a controlled outcome. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and I miss working with you. It it oh. was just fun, just fun. Well, uh, let's. I got two more minutes, Steve. If you can hang. Sure. Out uh, yeah. And um, so I, I told some family and some friends and some colleagues, I'm like, hey, I'm podcasting with D. Smith this week. You know, do you have any questions for D. Smith? Now, I will give the caveat. If your answers, this is just like a lightning round of five or six yep. questions. Okay, it's all good. If you say no comment, I have no problem with that. Uh, I, I, that's like one thing I just abhor. I answer every question. People, people may not like the answer, okay. but. Again, these aren't my questions. These are kind of uh, questions. Uh, okay, number one. Will the Patriots continue to cheat despite not having Tom Brady anymore? <laughs> uh, the Patriots are the Patriots. Okay, good. <laughs> good answer. Um, you versus Roger Goodell in a UFC fight. Who wins? Uh, I'm always going to be the first guy to cheat, so I win. Oh, very perfect. Uh, did the uh, did the Bears screw over Walter Payton in the 1985 Super Bowl by not letting him score a touchdown. Yes. They took the fridge instead, remember? Well, you know, I just think there's certain things you have to do. <laughs> yeah, and that was, that documentary is sad at the end. It's like, come on, man. That's, that's it's amazing. just, come on, man. Right. I mean, that just was, come on. That was just wrong. Okay. End zone celebrations after touchdowns, good or bad? Great. You like them? Love them. Keep it coming. I think the fans love them. Okay. Two more questions. Most terrifying football <laughs> player ever, Dick Buckkiss or Lawrence Taylor? If, 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 you're, if, if you're an offensive player, who would you fear? That's a tough one. Now, you can go Tar Heels on this one, D. Even though you went to UVA, come on. I, I'm going to choose neither. I'm going to choose Adam Jones. Okay, because I, I just watched that. thought, yeah. Are you growing Adam Jones? Okay. I, I've never met a guy who, you know, for all intents and purposes, is almost the same size as me, um, but played, played for about 100 years. Yeah. Um, and did everything from running back kicks to covering six foot six wide receivers. And, and when you talk to people in the league, you always heard of guys who were like, okay, that's that's the one guy I don't I yeah, don't want any part. You don't mess with him. <laughs> I don't want any part. <laughs> okay, last question for you. Yeah. Okay. What's the more thrilling activity? Watching paint dry or watching Virginia basketball offense? <laughs> I'm gonna go with um I on that one. I <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, I mean, you know me, as long as there's the W right after the end of Virginia, I'm good. But, you know, what's weird now is now we've, you know, my family, you know, like my wife and I met, you know, at UVA. We got married at UVA. And now we root for Maryland because our son plays lacrosse for the Terps. So, well, you got to. We're pure Terps. You, you got it. Well, I wore the Carolina blue, which annoys the Terps. I saw the Cavaliers. I did that. I saw it. You know, I did that when we first got I, I know you did. Well, Dee, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Please keep in touch. Uh, best wishes to you, and, and stay safe out there. And, and we'd love to have you back sometime in the future, okay? Man, anytime you call, I'll do this. This is, this is the most fun I've had in a long time. So thank you, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Talk to you soon. You too. Bye.